When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. Thanks for joining us this week. We appreciate you being here. We have a nothing will ever compare to this episode. No, I, I think that's true. Stacey, you have kind of a sad story this oh, week. Oh, boy, I do. So John and Elizabeth Edwards, or Elizabeth Edwards and John. Boy, very sad story. I'm telling that political scandal, it didn't actually end in divorce because she passed away before she could. From her perspective, and then on Wednesday, I'm going to cover the actual details of his scandalous affair on Trashy Breakups. So that's what I have this week. It's a trashy arc. It's a it's an arc. You have an arc all unto himself. I really do. I have the six degrees of separation of Prince. Two trashy divorces, a lot of trashy breakups. So we're sort of blending the trashy breakup, trashy divorce together. I didn't know someone could date every woman in the world. Apparently Prince did. Apparently Prince did. Before we start on the episode, let's go ahead and pull out the magic mirror. Sure. Covered in purple glitter this week. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Nancy B, Christina, Devere K, Camilla, Hannah K, Julie D, Erica D, Megan. Thanks y'all so much. Thanks to all of our new and existing Patreon supporters. Thanks for coming back and listening to us on another Sunday this week. Everybody, goodness, nothing will compare to either one of these two, although different stories, but similar. I think we only have one choice. And listener, nothing compares to you. So perhaps now we should go, go, go. So, Stacey, this week you're bringing us a much-requested trashy divorce from the political side of the fence. Indeed. I have put this off because it's a very sad story, and I hate telling very sad stories. So, welcome to our little comedy podcast. <clears throat> but it's season 11. It and is all the stories 11. we haven't told yet. So we're, we're working through them. Getting um, to it. Sometimes they're sad. It's true. I will say, I feel like this is an opportunity to highlight a person and her marriage and its breakdown without so much centering her much more prominent, at least in some contexts, husband. And that feels very right. So this is the story of attorney, mom, activist, and cancer warrior Elizabeth Edwards, wife of some 35 years to former North Carolina U.S. Senator and 2004 Democratic nominee for vice president, John Edwards. So I will get much more into the scandal that ended his political career. He was a credible candidate for the presidency in 2008 on Wednesday's trashy breakups. But today we're going to, as much as we can, keep the story focused on Elizabeth, aided in particular by her 2010 book called Resilience. We'll start at the start, though. Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Anania, was born July 3, 1949, she was a Navy brat. Her childhood happened everywhere. Much of it was spent in Japan. And like many military kids, the constant moving was sometimes fairly traumatic for her. She had two younger siblings. 
and her father served in the big three conflicts of the era, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam as well as flying surveillance flights, we would call these spying, uh, including one incident where he safely got the plane he was flying and the 13 people aboard it back to friendly territory when they were attacked by MiG fighter jets near North Korea. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for that. So her childhood was pretty itinerant, but it was also steeped in the meaning of duty and the tolerance that military spouses, which at that point were wives, displayed for the long absences from their loved one and the worries and fears of what might happen while those loved ones were away. I mean, it was it was quite the childhood. She talks about how, because she lived on military installations, like the, the radio station on base or on post, I'm not sure how the Navy has it, didn't play anti-war music. It play, You know, like she was just not exposed to, I don't know, like the entire kind of bubble of her life was very much like Cold War, America is great, and then sort of wholesome, you know, music. Anyway. So an alternative lens. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She missed the dirty 60s. Um, (laughs) She was a bright student, and she finished high school in Alexandria, Virginia, then finished college at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And after a few years doing post-grad work in English, decided, you know, I think I'm going to be a lawyer. So she went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill's law school, got her JD. It was there that she would meet her future husband, John Edwards. Johnny Reed Edwards, his real name, his given name, Johnny Reed Edwards, was born June 10th, 1953 in Seneca, South Carolina, though his family ultimately settled in Robbins, North Carolina. His childhood was solidly working class. His dad worked in a textile mill. He did eventually make his way up to be a supervisor, although he had no college degree. And he had just watched a lot of less experienced, less, I don't know, competent people advance ahead of him. I think there was a grudge. There's a political story of John Edwards, and, you know, it includes that. So, But did he get involved in the dirty 60s? <gasps> Hard scrabble, dad. Anyway, his mom ran a roadside antique finishing business. I believe John Edwards did grow a mustache in the 60s, but just a small one. It was a tough place to grow up. I mean, as the story goes. So in a 2003 profile for then-senator, then-presidential candidate John Edwards, Patrick Healy of the Boston Globe wrote, Growing up in a roughneck mill town where bullies didn't just tease you, they made you eat dirt. Johnny Reed Edwards banked his chances in a brawl on a single punch, hitting the bigger boys square on the nose as hard as he could, so their eyes teared up and they backed down. (laughs) That's quite a visual. Quite a visual. John was a jock. He became... This is honestly difficult to square with the John Edwards that we all came to know in the 2000s. Anyway, he was a jock. He was like his high school star football player. He traipsed off to Clemson University to try to walk on and get a football scholarship when he graduated, but that did not happen. So he graduated from North Carolina State University, a much more affordable option. And he was the first person in his family to go to college or to graduate. Oh, wow. From there, law school beckoned as it does. Such a weird, okay. (laughs) People, motivated people are just so surprising to me. Like at at 22, you wanted to keep going? (laughs) Okay. All right. Sorry. In 1975, he met Elizabeth while the two were sitting in a lounge at the law school. That Boston Globe piece says of Elizabeth, 
Quote, she was a brunette beauty who was widely regarded as one of the smartest women in their class. John Edwards was drawn to her worldly confidence. She once told a poorly organized professor that his lectures were, quote, about as clear as mud, which had come from fending for herself as a Navy child who moved around the United States and Japan. So Elizabeth recalls their specific meeting in a funny way. Again, sitting in the lounge at the law school, John Edwards reaches over to tap her on the shoulder, you know, get her attention, and inadvertently touches her breast (gasps) instead. Oh, no. Red-faced, stammering. He did not ask her out that day, but he did eventually ask her out. And Elizabeth's tale of their dating and early married years is a classic halcyon replay of a great love story. They hiked in the North Carolina mountains. I mean, they were dirt poor. They were students. They, you know, they had nothing. And they just, they camped their way across the country to go see the Grand Canyon. Eventually, they marry in a country church on July 30th, 1977. She told the Globe, John was a great breath of fresh air in my life. In the first year of law school, there's this idea that you want to live life intensely. We had no money. We were juggling so much. There were no reasons to be intensely happy, so you settled for being intensely miserable. (laughs) And then there was this person who'd go with me and buy corn on the cob for 25 cents a pound and a nice big piece of ham and sit for dinner and just talk. Everything was possible with this fella. Aww. That sounds very idyllic. Yeah. No, it really, they they had a great love story right up until. Okay. Yeah. So two kids followed, Wade in 1979 and Kate in 1982. And both parents balanced their work as lawyers and their family for almost the next couple decades. They both started careers clerking for judges, although notably Elizabeth worked for a federal judge and John just a district court judge. Anyway. Uh, Elizabeth had a stint in North Carolina's office of the attorney general. John spent the 80s building a reputation as a plaintiff's lawyer, an injury lawyer. We've been talking about those a lot lately, Tom Girardi, uh, representing people who had been hurt by various powerful entities. John Edwards, in particular, is one reason why C-section deliveries are so common today in the United States. Really? Yep. In the late 80s and early 90s, he brought in tens of millions of dollars in awards and settlements for his clients, children and mothers who had been injured when, he would argue, C-section was indicated, fetal monitors showed, you know, whatever, like C-sections were indicated, but the doctor's overruled the patients, the nurses, like whatever. The doctors made the decision to proceed with vaginal birth causing, you know, injury harm. So yeah, this like a lot of hospitals were like, oh my God, this guy's just stealing from everyone. (laughs) Like C-sections. From what I read, doctors today make more money if a C-section is performed, which may just be about increased costs. I'm not sure. But yeah, he certainly was part of the reason why that trended. I had no idea. I did not know that either. Interesting. Uh, There were other cases, obviously, including one that set a record for injury awards in North Carolina. He represented someone who had been injured by the driver for a trucking company. And the award was so large that the legislature of North Carolina changed the law to better protect people from trucking, co- I'm kidding. They changed the law to better protect trucking companies from people. <laughs> so, welcome to our cynicism roadshow. Here show. on Earth, too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he was becoming a national force in the legal community. 
Elizabeth was happily ensconced at a comfy law firm in Raleigh, helping people through bankruptcy. Kids, now teenagers, thriving. What goes wrong? It all seems on track. It all was. In Resilience, Elizabeth writes movingly of the way that a person's perfect life, or at least a life as close to perfect as you can imagine it being, can vanish in an instant. For Elizabeth and John Edwards, and for their daughter Kate, this occurred on April 4th, 1996, when their son Wade, son and brother Wade, driving to the family beach house in Wilmington, North Carolina, was swept off the road by a sudden gust of wind. Wade overcorrected, the car fishtailed, then flipped, then rolled repeatedly. Wade was sober, he was wearing a seatbelt, he was driving the speed limit, and he was talking with his friend in the passenger seat when it happened. It wasn't oh like God. cell phone, like nothing. It was just tragedy. Wade's friend emerged from the crash with a sprained ankle. Oh my God. Wade was killed. It's sad. It's fucking That's... sad. So as you would expect, Elizabeth spends a lot of resilience talking about grief. And she would unfortunately have a lot of it to deal with through the rest of her life. She retired from practicing law at this point. John also stopped working for a time. And she and John threw themselves into projects to honor their son. They created a computer and learning lab near, like across the street from his old school, stuff like that. She was active in various online communities for parents who've lost a child. And in Elizabeth's recollection, she and John were drawn closer than ever by their shared grief. With the blessing of Kate, they decided to have another child, then a second. Elizabeth gave birth to her youngest children when she was 48 and 50 years old. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. John Edwards had talked about getting into politics his whole career, but I think think the death of their child sort of transformed his view of how he should put his energy into the world. I get that, Um, but we also have two toddlers in the home. Well, there's that. Yeah, Elizabeth writes about their shared commitment to fighting poverty, to raising wages, to expanding healthcare access. These are classic democratic positions. And as the 1998 election cycle approached, John was inspired to run for a U.S. Senate seat that had been won in 92 by Republican businessman Lotch Faircloth. John was an easy recruitment target, since by that time he had become a millionaire many times over and could self-fund his campaign. This was before Act Blue existed. I mean, it was ahead of all of that. So at this point, candidates were still beholden to like big corporate donors and the party apparatus. Oh, still? Uh But on Earth 2, it's different now? (laughs) I think Act Blue has changed a lot of that. Yeah. There's, yes. Yes. They were beholden to all of these sort of old guard, you know, turns out you lose that, you lose guard rails, but you also get more interesting candidates running. Anyway, it's just, it's interesting. It's a moment in time. It was just a win-win thing for everyone. Millionaire lawyer with a, what, a tongue of gold? Is that, that sounds gross to say, but I mean, this guy could persuade a jury. Um, Anyway, he beat Faircloth. And in the Senate, he quickly made a name for himself as a rising star in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party loves Southerners who can win elections. Oh, for sure. No lie. Okay. (laughs) There were a lot of reasons here. So being a Southerner, as the South trended away, I mean, it's always like, oh, there's our hope, this deeply centrist Democrat. (laughs) But he was also telegenic. He was charismatic. He showed empathy. He had a compelling life story. 
He had two little kids plus like a Family kid man, moving into an adult. Marriage. Like it's mm-hmm. good on paper. The same gift that made him a fearsome plaintiff's lawyer. Again, golden tongue. It sounds terrible. Okay. The same, <laughs> the same gift that made him a fearsome plaintiff's lawyer made him effective and sometimes deadly in hearings. He defended Bill Clinton against impeachment and he blasted Bob Mueller for the FBI's failures ahead of September 11. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bob Mueller ran the FBI then. Yeah. He was shortlisted for Al Gore's VP pick in 2000. And by 03, Dudebro was ready to run for president himself. So instead of running for re-election for his Senate seat in 04, he launches his presidential campaign. The mainstay, the like the main, the why of why are you running? Um, he had this metaphor of the two Americas, one where the wealthy and privileged hoard resources and dreams, and one where the rest of us live paycheck to paycheck. And any single emergency, even one that's not particularly dire seeming from some perspectives, like what a, med- a load of fiction that was. <laughs> it's hard to sell. Yeah, a medical event like your car dying, a spouse leaving can easily just push people through the cracks and into a difficult to escape poverty. It was populist messaging that was arguably just a decade ahead of its ahead time. of its time. That's exactly right. If you'll recall, John Kerry was the Democratic nominee in 2004, not John Edwards, but he did pick Edwards as his VP choice. Elizabeth was frequently on the campaign trail, and her frankness made her a favorite of both the press and the public. The Washington Post wrote at the end of 2004, after her breast cancer diagnosis, more than most political wives, Edwards seemed to revel in the excitement of the campaign trail and was often praised for remaining authentic through the heady experience a brunette who has struggled with her weight. She jokingly refers to herself as the anti-Barbie. At one point during the campaign, her brother urged his sister to get some rest, to which she replied, rest is overrated. Elizabeth had found a lump in her breast, which she thought and or hoped was a cyst in the final days of the campaign, but she didn't want to distract John or have it be portrayed in the press as, right, that's just tricky like some sort of weird sympathy play or something fake. Like, anyway. So she didn't say anything about it? Didn't say anything about it. But she she made a brief trip back to Raleigh to see her doctor. Her doctor said, Elizabeth, I don't think this is a cyst. I think you need to go see somebody. So like a week or two later, the election is over. John Kerry concedes in Boston. They are, of course, there for the concession speech. And then Elizabeth and John head to... I don't know, Mass General or something, head to a specialist in Boston where she is formally diagnosed with invasive ductal cancer, which is the most common form of breast cancer. And in general, odds are very good if it's caught early. Like there there was a lot of reason at this moment to think to like be hopeful. This is this is gonna go okay. Sure. Like and it I mean it did for a while. It really did. As Elizabeth went through treatment over, you know, the next year or so, John was a perfect partner, father, caregiver. Like he was everything you would want in your spouse. He was out of elected office. He was directing a foundation on poverty-related issues. Again, there are two young children. Kate's growing into adulthood. And Elizabeth was receiving a string of good reports from her doctors about how her fight against the cancer was going. Tumor cells were dying. Like everything looked really good. Excellent. Things had once again blown off course in their lives, but they were forging ahead, finding a new normal, 
This is how Elizabeth describes life after the 2004 campaign for them in Resilient. John thought still about running for president again. He traveled, giving speeches, talking of poverty, about which he and I cared deeply, raising money for efforts to increase the minimum wage and start anti-poverty programs. I stayed home and wrote a book about the journey on which we had found ourselves over the previous decade. The children started public school, and without my knowing, a woman who spotted my husband one afternoon in the restaurant bar of a hotel in which he was staying hung around outside the hotel for a couple of hours until he returned from dinner and introduced herself by saying, you are so hot. (sighs) John revealed the affair, sort of, to his wife on December 30th, 2006. The woman was named Rael Hunter. She was a videographer, and she had most recently accompanied John on a multi-city tour to launch his campaign for the president for 2008. Oh, God. The story he told Elizabeth that night in 2006 was that he had had a one-night stand with Riel, that it was completely 100% over, and that he was having her removed from the campaign. Which he did, 100%, right? (laughs) They had been married 28 years at this point, had four kids together, had buried one, and of course his wife had recently beaten cancer. Like... Bro. It was tough news to take. I mean, Elizabeth says she screamed, she cried, and then she ran to the bathroom and threw up. Like, as you would. As you would. But, you know, Elizabeth, dutiful military child who shared causes and she thought values, plus a lifetime of memories with her husband. It was a one time thing. One time thing. We can be, mm-hmm. I, I'll find it in my heart she, to not kill you in your sleep. <laughs> She gradually began to let herself believe that they could move past a single indiscretion. She wrote, quote, I am sure after all these months, he wishes it had not even been one night. And when she said, you are so hot, he had turned and run. And I believe that he doesn't really understand why he did not. I will say, I, I am personally saddened by the amount of time that Elizabeth seems to have spent trying to understand why John did what he did and did not do what he did not do. The sort of too long didn't read the TLDR of the affair is that this was not a one night stand. What started outside of a New York hotel in February of 2006 continued on into 2007 with Rael becoming pregnant with John's child in May of 2007. The baby was born in February of 2008 and no father was named on the birth certificate. We take a lot of digs at the National Enquirer on this show, and for very good reason, but they do deserve the credit, such as it is, for exposing the affair in late 2007. When the Enquirer reported on Rail being pregnant, John denied everything and even allowed one of his old staffers, who was himself married at the time, to take the fall. So Rail and the staffer both claimed the baby was theirs. Oh my God. So the staffer, the staffer's wife, and their little kids moved to California with Rail. I don't know if they lived together, but like all three of them moved to California or all. I don't I know. I've forgotten many. so much about this so, time period. So much, so much. Meanwhile, John is feeding Elizabeth the absolute least amount of information he can get away with, with as much shading on it as he can muster to try to limit the damage to their marriage. I guess. Oh my God. 
She wrote, quote, It turned out that a single time was not all it was. More than a year later, I learned that he had allowed someone else into our lives and had not, even when he knew better, made her leave us alone. I tried to get him to explain, but he did not know himself why he had allowed it to happen. So you can imagine the level of gaslighting that she was subjected to, and not just from her husband, but also from key aides, people she trusted too, who were enabling his behavior and keeping her in the dark. It's terrible. The betrayal, I I can't imagine. Strong. Huge. This was a group project. Yes. And she was intentionally kept in the dark, but the National Enquirer is publishing on it. Oh, man. So the tabloids are screaming every time she's in a grocery store checkout line. And increasingly more respectable media outlets were recognizing that, gosh, there is a lot of smoke here. I have a feeling there's a pretty scorching fire. This is how Elizabeth described her historical approach to being on the campaign trail with her husband in the before times, before he was a cheater. The reason I was compulsive about learning whatever I needed to know on the campaign trail was that I was certain I would be humiliated if I was caught not knowing what everyone else in the room knew. (laughs) So, heart. so I learned four times the facts I would ever need, and I kept staff up nights finding answers to the questions I feared might be asked. Hello, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren. Like, hello, every woman who does prominent things. She continues about the time after the affair, quote, All the work to avoid being embarrassed was wasted. I now felt thoroughly and publicly humiliated. Oh, I, you did this? I have worked my tail off in order to assist you in your dreams and your careers. And you've done like... Nice work, John. Yep. Obviously, the scandal ended John's presidential aspirations as well as his political career. And he dropped out of the race after disappointing showings in Iowa, New Hampshire, and most heartbreakingly for him, South Carolina, where he had been born. He would eventually endorse Barack Obama, and Elizabeth went to work as a healthcare advisor on Obama's campaign. She was also an early advocate for gay marriage, telling the press in 2007, much to her husband's chagrin, I don't know why someone else's marriage has anything to do with me. I'm completely comfortable with gay marriage. So like John, the entire Democratic field, like no one in main mainstream politics was there at that point. That right. This was a fringe view in 2007. And my, how quickly things change. Anyway, good for her. To make matters desperately and tragically worse, though, in March 2007, Mm -mm. she and John learned that the cancer Mm. had returned. The successful earlier treatment had wiped out the main mass of tumor cells, but some too small to show up on imaging had remained and metastasized to her bones. They thought there might be a spot on her lung. The situation as described then was that her cancer was treatable but not curable. So Elizabeth Edwards was forced to confront adultery, continued lying and gaslighting by her husband, and the fact that there was an uncertain time clock on her life itself, all at the same time, all while mothering two young children, all while trying to understand what her own life outside of, or at least more separate from, a marriage of more than 30 years would or should be. Just keep talking, I'm crying. You got the feels. It's a, it's, it's a bad story. Late in 2009, pursuing her own interests, specifically those being making a home, she opened a furniture store in Chapel Hill, and she writes about the joy of going to like craft furniture makers, and I think in High Point, North Carolina, 
to buy inventory for it and just being Elizabeth. Not Elizabeth Edwards, not John's wife. Just Elizabeth, a small business owner with a shop she needed to fill with beautiful things. Friends, I don't know how else to put this, but this story is deeply cruel. On January 21st of 2010, John finally admitted publicly that Rail Hunter's child was his. This is years later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, yes, this is three, yeah, three years-ish later, end of December 06, yeah. Elizabeth already knew this, but the years of lies about all of it had taken the joy entirely out of their marriage. How could it not? Elizabeth legally separated from him at that point, intending to divorce him after the state of North Carolina's mandatory one-year separation period had passed. But the cancer she had been battling and uncomfortably coexisting with since 2004 took that choice away from her. Mm. On December 7th, 2010. Oh, God, just a few weeks before Mm -hmm. that year period. Yep. Yep, yep. Elizabeth Anania Edwards, best-selling author, breast cancer warrior, champion for a better, more fair America, and mother of four, died of metastatic breast cancer at her home in Chapel Hill, surrounded by friends and family, including John. She was 61. I'm glad we're going through this together. (laughs) (sighs) She was laid to rest beside her son, Wade. Mm -hmm. She did write John out of her will. Good. I approve of that. On a doofier, hey, remember those idiots kind of note, the Westboro Baptist Church threatened to picket her funeral. So as those fake Christian monsters used to do, um, in response... Hundreds of Raleigh residents turned out to keep them away from the church. Nice job, Raleigh. Nice job. Five completely terrible human beings with their awful signs showed up and were kept blocks. Excellent. Away. Excellent. Wowza. God, these sad ones just... Oof. Friends, that is the intended but sadly never completed divorce of Elizabeth and John Edwards. John's political career obviously evaporated. It's weird how cheating on your wife who had cancer will do that. And he returned to practicing law in North Carolina. But the scandal of his affair with Rael Hunter and his increasingly boneheaded efforts to cover it up was genuinely gigantic and ultimately led to a bunch of federal indictments. We're going to get into that whole mess on Wednesday with trashy breakups. But my God, can you imagine? If Elizabeth Edwards were still around in the era of Elizabeth Warren and Andrea Ocasio-Cortez and, like... I hope she would be in office. The 2016 race with Hillary Clinton, like, ah, such a loss. Like... What a magnificent soul. Thank you. That was really well done. (sighs) That was really hard. That was really hard. It's a sad story. It is a really sad story. It's a sad story. Mm -hmm. Thank you for focusing on her triumphs. That was good. It's a really anger-inducing story. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and come back with something a little different. Got a trashy breakup, trashy divorces blended episode. All in one today. See you on the flip. 
Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? Or a thriller you could only read during the day? The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. All right, so we are now going to change it up a smidge with a certain... Raspberry beret wearing gent? Yes. (laughs) It is time to talk about the trashy breakups and trashy divorces of Prince. A legend. Absolutely. At 100%. Mm -hmm. The world was shocked and saddened when Prince died on April the 21st. Oh, my news feed was... uh... 2016. Five years ago. At the age of 57... From an accidental fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. After ruling out suicide and foul play, Prince was cremated and his remains were placed into a custom 3D printed urn shaped like his beloved Paisley Park estate. In his 57 years, Prince was one of the most influential and respected musicians of our time. You're not kidding. Endlessly talented. Mm -hmm. Singer, songwriter, record producer, actor, director, as well as masterfully playing Guitar, keyboard, drums, and others. He's a cultural icon. He's a fashion icon. Flamboyant, androgynous style that was sexy AF in a way. Oh, it was like gender bending. And I mean, it was bending. It was just bending. Packed a lot of power Mm -hmm. in a persona. 
in Prince's illustrious, but cut relatively short career, he sells over 150 million records. Wins a Grammy Award for Best Original Song Score. Nominated for 32 Grammys. Wins seven. Two of his albums won the Grammy Hall of Fame Award. And Rolling Stone Magazine will name him 27th on their list of 100 most influential musicians of all time. At the time of his death, Prince's net worth is estimated at over $300 million. Prince was born Prince Rogers Nelson, June 7th, 1958, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Gemini boy. His parents are both musicians. But Prince really doesn't like his name Prince and would prefer all of his friends and his family Call him Skipper instead. That does not take. I, I Yeah, I don't know if Skipper would have uh, launched. <laughs> Skipper. <laughs> no, man. My name's Skipper. No. Prince was musical from the beginning. His parents are musicians. His musical talents naturally are encouraged by his family. He writes his first song called Funk Machine when he's seven. It's the first of many. <laughs> Went to the top. <laughs> First of many, though, that he's going to write in his lifetime. He is one of the most prolific songwriters of all time. Estimates go between 500 and 1,000 total songs written by him. Wow. A lot of famous songs that we're familiar with. Raspberry Beret, 1999, Purple Rain. But he writes a lot of songs that he does not sing. Mm -hmm. Manic Monday by the Bengals. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. Okay. How Come You Don't Call Me by Alicia Keys. Jungle Love by The Time. I think I, stay in the yeah, I think I knew time. that. I feel for you, Shaka Khan, When You Were Mine by Cindy Lauper. We've talked about Stand Back by Stevie Nicks a little bit on Patreon. We have, yeah. Love Song by Madonna. Pray by MC Hammer. Get It Up by TLC. Also, Nothing Compares to You. I believe there's a story attached to that. There is. We're going to mm. talk about it. So in addition to this famous musical career, Prince is also well known for many of his romances. He was married twice, but his list of girlfriends is extensive. Today we're going to take a look at some of those girlfriends as well as his ex-wives. Maybe he tended to write a song for each. <laughs> There's a song attached to most. <laughs> okay. All right. One of Prince's first well-publicized romances is with fellow performer Vanity. Prince will date Vanity, whose born name, given name, is Denise Matthews in the early 1980s. The two meet at the American Music Awards when he was there for his album Dirty Mind. But nobody knows who Prince is. He's not yet a household name. But he and Vanity hit it off. The two have a similar artistic and musical style. I think you're going to come to find out that Prince likes protégés. And he sees in Vanity something and takes her under his wing. And this first time, but it won't be the last time that he'll do this for aspiring musicians and performers. He decides that he wants to form an all-girl group to perform his music. Which was also fairly ahead of its, I mean... Early 80s? Yeah, that just wasn't, that wasn't something you did. Well, Vanity is the lead singer of this band, which is named Vanity Six. The most notable of the group's hit songs written together by Vanity and Prince was the chart topper, Nasty Girl. This is an 80s virtual ride. Vanity is supposed to star 
in his film Purple Rain, but this ends up not happening because they break up prior to filming. The breakup is prompted because of Vanity's serious crack cocaine addiction yeah. happening at the time. That's too bad. Sadly, she dies in 2016. Wow. Also at the age of 57 due to renal failure caused by her earlier career severe drug use. Right. Drug misuse. Substance misuse. Thank you. Sometimes it's hard. It's been a it's been an emotional day here yeah. on Trashy Divorces. Yeah. Prince hears of Vanity's death right before taking stage for a concert in Australia. He's deeply moved by the news, and he shares his private thoughts and feelings with the audience, which is not something he'll do a lot on stage. He's a really private guy. He, that that was, yeah, I know very little about his private life. I know him through his music. Like, this is all going to be new to me. So he will say in the show, someone dear to us has passed away. I'm going to dedicate this song to her. And he plays a touching version of Little Red Corvette with a touch of Dirty Mind, songs from the era in which they were together mm-hmm. back in the early 80s. After an encore, Prince will come back to the stage and say, I'm new to this playing alone. I thank you all for being so patient. I'm just trying to stay focused. It's a little heavy for me tonight. Just keep jamming. She knows about this one. And then he'll play another touching version of The Beautiful Ones, again, a song from The Vanity Days. He'll end the song by changing the last lyrics from My Knees to Denise, Denise. So, time for some more girlfriends. Get comfortable. That's only ex-girlfriend number one. We move on to Apollonia, who is Prince's Purple Rain co-star. As is often the case, actors have chemistry on screen and then they find themselves having chemistry off screen as well. Seems like Prince had a lot of chemistry. <laughs> In his laboratory? Yes. At yes. Paisley Park. Such is the case for Prince and Apollonia. So he makes his acting debut in the movie Purple Rain in 1984. And then the relatively unknown actress Apollonia Katero was cast as the female lead. The movie is an enormous success. Grosses $72 million wow. worldwide. It I was I was not allowed to see it. I really, oh, you were me. too young. I was in a little young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not I've never seen it. I should go watch it. I mean, uh, after we're done recording. Yeah, I didn't get to see it when I was 12. I had to wait until I was a adult as gotcha. the adults would say we'll have a screening but they're princes and all of his musical talents and this is the film that will earn him an academy award for best original score song prince and apollonia date for a year and after the breakup she still has nothing but nice things to say about him apollonia describes prince as her greatest friend <laughs> i love this part and saying years later when asked about the romance we were and still are platonically, romantically involved. Put that into your laboratory. I mean... <laughs> we are platonically, romantically involved. <laughs> we don't know what that means. Some but... kind of street. I, I, yeah, okay. On to Sherilyn Finn. Oh. Sherilyn Finn. Whoa. Although Prince and former Twin Peaks and Gilmore mm-hmm. Girls star. Oh, also Sherilyn Finn starred in the Season in Purgatory miniseries. Oh, interesting. From Dominic Dunn. Yeah. Did not know. They don't date for very long, Sherilyn and Prince, but she wanted to make sure that she honored him when he died. 
They dated in 1985. It was very briefly. Did they stay platonically romantic? <laughs> I don't think so. After their breakup, Finn's next relationship was with TD alum Johnny Depp. <laughs> that romance lasted several years. And they actually got engaged, Johnny Depp and Sherilyn Finn, before they broke up. Sherilyn Finn, no stranger to trashy breakups, also has been romantically linked to Chris Penn, Kiefer Sutherland, and Billy Idol. Interesting. Sherilyn Finn, upon Prince's passing, does have a statement. She will say, Prince inspired me. He changed my life. I will miss him greatly. There will only ever be one Prince. She will also tweet that she was absolutely devastated to lose her sweet Prince. Prince is never one to stay lonely for too long. No, not with that kind of chemistry. He's got a whole lab. So Prince and Sherilyn Finn are brief. Right. So after the breakup with Apollonia, Prince will go on to begin dating the drummer with his band, Sheila E. Mm-hmm. Sheila E's a badass. Oh, hell yeah. Gosh, she's so good. The two had first met in the late 1970s in the music scene. They collaborate and write together. She's involved in Purple Rain. She'll provide a number of vocals on the album's tracks. So when Prince and the Revolution go on their wildly successful Purple Rain tour, Sheila E. is the opening act. Also, we didn't talk about it last week. You know that Sheila E. is the birth aunt of Nicole Richie. No. She is the sister of Nicole Richie's father. Before Nicole Richie was adopted by Lionel Richie. Oh, I was like, the sister of Lionel Richie? The, no, no, the birth sister father. of... Gotcha. Because Nicole was adopted by Lionel and Brenda. Yes. Okay. It's all coming back now. There's a lot of spider webs sure. in this story. Just try to keep up. Okay. Sheila E's the opening act. Mm-hmm. They go on tour. It isn't very hard to imagine what happens next. They date for a few years. They become engaged, Prince and Sheila E, during his Love Sexy tour in 1987. When later asked about that engagement because they do not get married, Sheila E says, For the rest of that year, my relationship with Prince was a dream. We were with each other all day and all night, so if he was fooling around on me, he would have had to be quick about it. (laughs) Despite remaining close until his death, they never do end up marrying. Details about the breakup are kept very private, but they do continue to perform together, but are no longer romantically involved. Sheila E. will release a statement to People magazine when she hears of Prince's death. The statement is, Sheila E. says, The meaning of the word loss has taken on a new meaning this day. Thank God love lives forever. We move on to another TD alum, Madonna. Oh. <laughs> Prince and Madonna have a short-lived, but of it is a harsh profile. Do. Yeah. I don't think it's a romance. It's more fair to call it a fling. This was in the mid-1980s. Knowing Madonna, knowing Prince, it's a little bit tumultuous. It's reported that they're dating. Some reports say that Madonna is far more interested in him than he is in her. During this time, though, the two will collaborate on a song called Love Song, which was featured on her Like a Prayer album in 1989. It was brief. It was a fling. The relationship does not last too long. No, but but you can imagine. I mean, in that era... How could the two of them not have... It's like Michael Jackson busting out with Brooke Shields. Right. Like, Like, at least considered each other as partners. Madonna will end up 
singing at an award show tribute to Prince at the Billboard Awards in 2016. She can claim to be a member of the ex-girlfriend group. Goodness, this is a TD alum road show is what it is, because now we move on to Kim Basinger. Wow. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, Prince has a romance with Kim Basinger. They meet and start dating when she stars in the 1989 Batman movie with Michael Keaton, directed by Richard Burton. Prince is working on that soundtrack. The two quickly fall in love. Kim Basinger moves to Minneapolis to be closer to Prince. This actually seems like she may have been happier had she stayed there. Well, let me keep going. Okay. Okay. So- I mean, maybe not with him, but like, I, anyway. Oh my God. No, wait. You're not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. Kim only has nice words about Prince after the breakup. She will tell the Daily Beast much later, it was a really special moment in time and I have great memories. I don't put a lot of restrictions on myself. Let's just put it that way. If there's someone I connect with, we'll go on these rides together. So that was a neat time in my life. This ends up being a career success for Prince as well. The Batman soundtrack Mm -hmm. peaks at number one on the Billboard 200 for like six weeks. Sells 4.3 million copies. Somebody just posted an image of it in my newsfeed the other day. I was like, oh, right. He did that. A single bat dance Mm -hmm. (laughs) was Mm -hmm. at the top of the Billboard 100 and R&B charts. Now, here's what you may not know. Prince and Kim Basinger produce an album together called Hollywood Affair, where they sing and rap about their whirlwind romance. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Let's add a little bit more spice and trashy Mm. to the story, Mm -hmm. because in 1989, Prince will put out a 12-inch single called The Scandalous Sex Suite, S-U-I-T-E. Of course. Which features... Most prominently, Kim Basinger's sex noises. Oh, my God. In the single, Kim Basinger is moaning and groaning, and it was rumored to have come from recordings of the couple having sex. Rumored or just was that just stated obvious? You can check our resources at TrashyDivorces.com. Okay. So most of his ex-girlfriends have had glowing things to say about him, but this one, not a girlfriend and maybe not glowing at all. I'm going to throw in some counterbalance to the story. Because for all the glowing things that, again, Prince's ex-girlfriends do have to say about him, Sinead O'Connor is not Uh an ex. Nope. But she does have another side to lend to some actions and behaviors that around here we might would call pretty trashy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Decidedly so. So let's spend a little time hearing what Sinead O'Connor has to say. The two will meet one time in 1991. There are a number of sources that I have compiled this narrative from. Again, TrashyDivorces.com will give you our sources for stories. So there has been some recent press. Mm -hmm. In 2021, Sinead O'Connor will release a memoir called Rememberings. Mm -hmm. She's having a moment. Mm -hmm. She's having a moment where she will talk about Prince. She will claim he was a devil worshiper at the time they met that he dabbled in the occult. This is previous to his Jehovah's Witness Seventh-day Adventist conversion. I mean, sure. (laughs) But she'll recall that time when they met that she sees the irises in his eyes disappear. Okay, that's... She will tell the times that is as true as God. 
I believed he was involved in the devil's business because an old girlfriend of his told me he had the power to make shit move around the room. Wow. Okay, so I've combined a few stories here, but this is how Sinead O'Connor, over a number of sources, lays it out. Mm -hmm. There's a particular night in 1991. This happens in Los Angeles. As she tells it, quote, He summoned me to his house one night and I foolishly went alone, not knowing where I was. He summoned me there because he was uncomfortable with the fact that I wasn't a protege of his. He got me up there to see, could this bitch be one of mine? I guess he didn't bank on the Irish in me telling him to go fuck himself. (laughs) They will not get on in the meeting that they have. Yeah, it sounds like. She will continue telling Norwegian TV station NRK, we didn't get along at all. In fact, we had a punch up. He summoned me to his house and he's very foolish to do this with an Irish woman He told me he didn't like me saying bad words in my interviews, so I told him to fuck off. In another version, he didn't ask, but ordered me that I don't swear anymore. Exactly. So she tells him to fuck off. He then starts calling her Shinehead. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. And this is after she has made Nothing Compares to You, a Prince song. Correct, because he likes protégés. So he... Right, into this global... Well, there are a few things. So she covered his song... Which is an enormous success, right? He has these female protégés and she says he was annoyed that I wasn't one of them. There's also a third thing happening, which is Sinead's manager had been Prince's manager and they were involved in a legal dispute. So Sinead O'Connor's like, I didn't know I was in the middle of this. I didn't know better, but I got in the middle of this. (laughs) And then she'll also go on to say on top of all this, He was a woman-beating C-word. I'm certainly not the only woman he laid a hand on. Wow. Because here's what happens. She'll continue. He gets quite violent. I had to escape out of his house at like 5 o'clock in the morning. He really packed a punch bigger than mine. They get into a legitimate physical fight. Prince was like, let's pillow fight. And put some kind of heavy object in a pillowcase, knocks her over the head with it. She'll continue. It's five o'clock in the morning. We're running around his car and I'm spitting at him and he's trying to punch me and he's got a skillet that he's trying to hit me with. Then I had to go ring someone's doorbell, which my father always told me to do if I got into a situation like that. I could run faster than him, though, because my father was a sprinter And Prince had on the boots. Oh, my God. But she rings a doorbell and then Mm -hmm. he takes off. Right. No, this story has been floating around in various ways, like, since the 90s. I mean, I I heard this long ago. Well, she says, I'm not the only woman he laid a hand on at the time. About the time, she'll say he was into some pretty dark drugs. I'm not the only woman he had to go out. It was down to the drugs and he was doing some pretty dark drugs. We all behaved crazily on alcohol or drink. Sinead will go on to say in an interview, I know there are other women this happened to if they'd ever decide to be brave enough to tell their story. That is as yet unconfirmed, but Sinead O'Connor, not a Prince fan. Moving on into the Mm. 1990s. Sure. Prince continues to make headlines with his active love life. He'll discover a young new protege named Tara Lee Patrick in the early 1990s. And promptly change her name to Carmen Electra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
A star is born and so is a romance. The two very publicly date, although it isn't exactly clear for how long. Prince most assuredly launches Carmen Electra's career. Before she becomes a big Baywatch star, she is an aspiring singer. Prince will help her write and produce her debut album, Carmen Electra, in 1993. Her name is derived from a song that he writes called Carmen on Top. (laughs) She loves the song and he convinces her that she's much more of a Carmen than a Tara. So Prince had started Paisley Park Records in 1985, and so he'll sign Carmen Electro to a record deal with his company, but doesn't stop there. He'll direct all of her videos and choose all of her outfits, too. <clears throat> it's a good thing that he had style and taste. Well, Carmen Electra is his opening act on the Diamonds and Pearl tour. This is happening in their romance, a la Sheila E. from the previous decade. But the relationship doesn't last much beyond that tour. Once the tour is over, she'll move back to L.A. The two break up. Now, Carmen Electra going on to have two husbands and divorces, Dennis Rodman and Dave Navarro, which I have made a note for a future Trashy Divorces episode because, whoa. So Carmen Electra is another former girlfriend who has nothing but praise for Prince after the breakup. I hate to ask, but is there any indication that there were NDAs involved? Ooh, I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. This is a lot of positive feedback from people you've broken up with. That's all I'm saying. We're going to get one or two more negative reviews. Okay. We're not even, we're about halfway through. There's a lot. Carmen Electra always publicly credits Prince with putting her name on the map and giving her career opportunities that otherwise she wouldn't have. Oh, sure. Yeah. After his death. She'll make a statement to The Hollywood Reporter saying, The world has lost a truly incredible spirit and musical genius. What a blessing it is to be one of the chosen ones who've had a chance to work so closely with him. He gave me my name. He believed in me. And he has inspired an entire generation. I will always love him. But they broke up. Prince doesn't say Stingle for long. Doesn't sound like... Vanessa Marcille, the actress who was previously married to Corey Feldman in the early 1990s, also is rumored to be the inspiration for Prince's 1995 song, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. Prince's first ex-wife, Maite Garcia, will say that song is written about her, but alas. The Most Beautiful Girl in the World makes its global debut at the Miss USA pageant on February 11th, 1994 on CBS. The song later goes on to be the subject of a long legal battle, which accuses Prince of plagiarism. Prince will eventually lose that case. Vanessa and Prince meet at a club. After repeatedly asking her to dance and her refusing, (laughs) he has a different move. And he asks her to trade shoes with him because they wore the same size. And then a friendship was born over shoes. (sighs) Vanessa will go in to star in the video for the most beautiful girl in the world. But at this point, she has really uh, deep into a drug and alcohol habit that is on a pretty disastrous path. Prince is the one who advised her to change her lifestyle and stop using drugs. She will say she got sober because she didn't want to disappoint Prince. Hmm. And for a time, she was starring on General Hospital as well. And she's frequently seen wearing a necklace of Prince's symbol Hmm. when she's on that show. 
Interesting. To be fair, it's not truly clear whether they had a breakup or they were just friends, but Vanessa Marcille will go on to have a very trashy breakup and custody battle later with her partner, Brian Austin Green of 90210 fame. It's connects mm-hmm. to everything. Well, it sounds like he's dated everyone, so. Well, he's not quite done yet because then he dates Nona Gay, who is Marvin Gaye's daughter. They date three years, starting when she is in her late teens. Uh-oh. Her comments and memories about Prince do not land in the I love him ex-girlfriend camp. She'll tell people in 2003, I just thought he was beautiful and that her heart was shattered following their breakup. Nona will claim that Prince suggested that the couple would be married and being young and in love and a teenager, he's 16 years older than she is. She's a bit in awe. She believes him. She's quoted as saying, I never really knew him. And I never really let him know me. I tried to be this woman I thought he wanted, very passive, letting him lead. He told a friend of mine he was going to marry me and take care of me. I knew I wouldn't get anything better than that from him, so I believed it. After that, we were in New York and he asked me to come see a show. Maite, one of his dancers, flashed the engagement ring he'd given her from the stage. Oh, When I asked him about it afterwards, he was very evasive and defensive. I haven't spoken to him since. Oh, my God. It upsets me that we ended things that way because at one point he was really, really important to me. Prince would, in fact, go on to marry Maite Garcia. That's the worst breakup I've ever heard of. Hey, I'm in town. Come to my show tonight. And then you announce your engagement. Here's my new fiance flashing a ring. Okay, so this is a little trashy. Prince first spots Maite Garcia when she's 16. She's a military brat. She's a really good belly dancer. And her parents will take her to see a Prince show. This is in Europe. And her parents are like, you need to get your tape to him. Look at all these dancers he has. He'd really like, you know, what you're doing. And she does. And she is 16. And he is not. Yeah. They develop a friendship. Hmm. Now, from Prince's side, seeing her in that first meeting, he'll refer to Maite as his future wife to a band member. Now, sounds like he says that about a lot of people, though. Graciously, Prince will let her finish high school before they begin sexual relations. Okay, Apparently, 19 is the time. And Prince is like, you need to go get on birth control. And she does. So, Prince and Maite start dating in 1992. She is hired and brought on to the Diamonds and Pearls tour. She is much of the focus and inspiration for his 14th studio album called Love Symbol. He will produce an album for her called Child of the Sun. They date like four years. They get married. First marriage, Valentine's Day, 1996. She is 22. He is 37. She quickly gets pregnant. But feels in her pregnancy that something may not be going great, but Prince has converted now to Jehovah's Witness. So he will not allow a medical intervention or doctors or anything. So the couple has a son in October 1996. They name him Amir, which means Prince in Arabic. Very sadly... The child will die a week after his birth. Oh, my God. From a genetic disorder called Pfeiffer syndrome. 
What is that? It's something that affects one in a hundred thousand births. It's a genetic disorder where certain bones of the skull fuse prematurely. Oh no. While the brain is. Oh. So six days after birth, the child is unable to breathe without a ventilator and will die. Which is terrible. Yeah. Suffering the loss of a child. Oh my God. Tragic. Prince and Maite go on the Oprah show that week okay. and pretend the baby's still alive. Okay. I don't know why you lie to Oprah. Oh. They're unable to process this grief. I mean, uh, understandable, but maybe you cancel the appearance. Like, oh my gosh, what a terrible, terrible. And she'll admit now, like, his faith was just so strong. I figured everything would be fine, but everything was not fine. Oh, boy. The strain and the sadness of Amir's death, as well as a subsequent miscarriage. Right? We'll what leave a tr- this poor young woman. Like, terrible. Probably just trying to be everything he wants. Uh, uh, that's sad. The marriage is troubled. The pair will end up divorcing in 2000. We'll share what Prince did after that divorce, which may lend you some feelings on feelings. He will have the home they share bulldozed, flattened to the ground. Wow. I guess that's one way to wash away some trauma. So of her relationship with Prince, though, (laughs) Maite Garcia tells an interviewer, all of the songs he wrote for me, that's a pretty hard act to follow. I've dated a couple guys, musicians, who've written me poems or songs, and I'm like, seriously, don't even go there. You can't compete. Admittedly, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue was the competition. This is in the early 2000s. This is his divorce post Pamela Anderson. He dates Maite for a while. They get engaged, but that marriage is not to be. After Prince's death, Maite will release a statement. I can't even think of the words of what I'm feeling. This man was my everything. We had a family. I am beyond deeply saddened and devastated. I loved him then. I love him now and will love him eternally. He's with our son now. Mm. There's a thread for today. We got one more wife. Prince isn't going to waste any time remarrying after his divorce from Maite. Manuela Testolini. The couple meets through a charity collaboration in 2001. They are married that same year in a small private Jehovah's Witness ceremony. Now, Prince, immensely private guy. So there's not a lot known about this, but apparently their relationship begins to sour May of 2005. There's some recently released 2017 court documents that go into a little bit of this. So the court files will reveal a dispute between the couple in which Testolini accuses Prince of locking her out of their home. There were court orders signed by a judge revealing that Prince also cut off her credit cards and had all of her stuff boxed up and stowed away in Paisley Park in a vault for safekeeping. These same papers reveal that the couple will seek counseling from New York City-based elders of the Jehovah's Witness faith, but that does not work. In Manuela's petition for divorce, this is after six years of marriage, she will ask for $43,000 a month. She said there was no limit to our spending. 
We'd bring 5K a day in on a stylist. We'd spend $50,000 for an after party. There's a lot of spending. Prince is a respondent. It's pretty, pretty telling. Quote, no amount of money can recreate the access to the events and personality she now apparently seeks to replicate with a monetary award, unquote. Oh, my God. He offers her $10,000 a month with some homes and cars. The court documents do not ultimately explain why Prince and Manuela separate. The final settlement has not been revealed. The divorce is granted October 2007 after six years of marriage. But everything still at that point wasn't settled. Testolini will accuse Prince of not returning several of her personal items from the vault, vault, right? Including jewelry and photos. Whatever hard feelings she had apparently had softened. By the time of Prince's death, she'll tell Entertainment Tonight, I am heartbroken beyond words. Prince and I had a magical journey together and I loved him immensely. I knew him as a husband, friend, and fierce philanthropist. Philanthropy brought us together, and it was Prince that encouraged me to start my own charity over 10 years ago. Good Lord. All right. Are you exhausted yet? We got one more. Bria Valente. She's a protege of and backup singer for Prince. She sings on his 2007 album, Planet Earth, and they begin dating shortly after. They have a five-year relationship. She will convert to Jehovah's Hmm. Witnessing. I don't know if I knew that he... Was a Jehovah's Witness for that long of his life? The last two decades, yeah. As fate would have it, Bria Valente was one of Prince's last romantic relationships due to his premature death in 2016, but they had already broken up by 2013. Again, super private. Not a lot is known about the details of that relationship. Bria is very rarely seen or heard. She did remarry and continue to stay a Jehovah's Witness. Prince, a lot of lovers in his lifetime, rumored to have been romantically involved with so many others that maybe just were musical collaborators or protégés. Again, he keeps his private life notoriously private, but will never shy away from controversy when it comes to sexual lyrics, behavior on stage, fashion and outfit choices. Much of his scandalous behavior does calm down. When he finds religion, he becomes a dedicated Jehovah's Witness in like 2001. Prince even begins doing traditional Jehovah's Witness door-to-door ministry. Are you serious? Oh, that would be remarkable. Can you imagine? No. Prince coming to your door to talk to you about God. Have you heard about God? Are you Prince? Like, what? I have the watchtower here for you. I normally turn away religious peddlers at my door but if prince came to my door peddling i mean something i'd at least take the brochure yes sir you can come inside (laughs) would you like some cookies let's talk about it tell me about the gospels i got a guitar around here somewhere sing it for me prince god bless uh his crooning about sexual positions simulating sex on stage is toned down a little bit is this when he became the artist formerly known as Prince? Was Probably, that part of that? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So although a lot of details are known and not known about his romantic relationships, there was a definite outpouring of grief and loving comments from former lovers. And the public. And the public. 
there was some opposite side of that. I think it is clear to say he made an enormous impact on the women in his life. For good or ill. As well as music. And that is the trashy divorces breakup saga of Prince. I don't know how many trash cans he gets, but they're all purple. They're all purple wearing a red beret in a little red Corvette. Something. Yeah, all purple stacked in a red Corvette filled with raspberry paisley berets. There you go. There you go. That was... That was a journey. That was a spider web of <laughs> a trashy divorces story. Who hasn't Prince been connected with, really? I mean, He's sounds six like... six degrees of separation. Yeah, sounds like everyone, yeah. Y'all, that's another week of trashy divorces. Thank you for tuning in, spending your time with us. We'll be back this week for a whole new cycle of stuff on Patreon. We'll be back with you on Wednesday for trashy breakups. Mm-hmm. As always, if you want a few more extra free episodes of Trashy Divorces, you can go to bit.ly slash trash candy. Just for free. Mm-hmm. Just sitting out there. Check them out. Yeah, we just we rotate stuff through. Yeah, the, I'm going to do a refresh this week as well to throw up a few new ones, take a few away. Always kind of a try, buffet try of trash. It, try to keep it fresh. Yeah. Big love to y'all. Big trashy cheers. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Always trashy. We can't wait to see you Wednesday. Until then. Go have a great week. And keep it trashy. Bye, friends. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.